people have stories, don't they? Uh, and people's stories intersect with each other. And one of the reasons we go and do stories from the seats is we think something that Rick is going to share with you is going to intersect with your story. And it's going to help you in your walk with Christ. Rick is a friend. He's, a, I call him the lead greeter of our Grundy Center Theater campus. He knows everyone in town. He's been teaching there over 25 years. He knows everyone. It's almost impossible for me to find anyone who walks in the theater that Rick doesn't walk up, give him a hug, and say, Good morning, John. Uh, he just knows everyone out there. I didn't know much of his story until a few weeks ago when we sat down and I read his narrative. And uh, I think there's a lot here that you're going to want to hear. So, Rick Schupach. Thank you. Have you ever felt alone? No, I mean really alone. I have. It wasn't when I came home from school as an eight-year-old to find a note from my mom saying she was going to be gone for the weekend and she never returned home. It wasn't when I was in junior high and my sister and brother were no longer living at home and my dad was working out of state for two weeks at a time and I lived by myself going to bed each night longing to have a family member no, anyone to say goodnight to it wasn't when my dad came home on a weekend but immediately went to the bars and spent his time drinking either coming home drunk or many times not coming home at all as he found women to spend the night with instead of being home with his son. And it wasn't in ninth grade when sports were taken away for the entire year because I had an injury, even though at the time sports were what I lived for. See, I now realize, looking back during these difficult times and many others I had growing up in a family where my mom, my dad, my sister, and my brother were all alcoholics, that God placed people in my life to care for me. And though I was a lonely boy for much of my childhood, I realized God used these relationships to keep me from truly feeling all alone. When my mom left, it was an exceptional elementary teacher, Miss Rosie Ryan, who made me feel special. And though she had high expectations for me as a student, I knew she cared more for me as a person. My relationship with Miss Ryan is still strong today, 43 years later, and I know that on September 25th, 2012, I will receive a birthday card from her. Looking back, I believe she not only served as a mother figure in my life when I desperately needed it, but she also inspired in me to become a teacher. During my junior years, or junior high years, God placed families such as the McManicals and the Patswalds in my life. They made me feel like one of their own children when I went to their house to visit. Looking back, I believe they instilled in me some sense of normalcy and gave me a model of what a family could be and a vision for what I wanted my own future family to look like. When I could not play sports as a ninth grader, God placed Joe Campbell, my seventh grade basketball coach, back in my life as Mr. Campbell invited me to help him coach the seventh grade team. Looking back, I now realize that that experience fueled in me a passion for coaching that has led me to over 30 years of working with young people in the athletic arena. See, in all these difficult circumstances growing up, I really wasn't alone. 
God had provided me with guardian angels. He had me covered. I just didn't know it at the time. It wasn't until much later in life that I felt that I was alone. I mean truly all alone. I mean an alone where you feel you have no control, no hope, and you see no way out. That alone feeling started for me on April 17th, 1997, at the age of 36. It came when I was told I had cancer, a tumor the size of my fist, located right in my chest. That alone feeling reached a pinnacle five days later in a hotel room in Rochester, Minnesota, after my doctor at the Mayo Clinic confirmed a diagnosis of a rare malignant cancer, an aggressive cancer, a cancer that meant chemotherapy treatments of 120 hours straight on four different occasions, a cancer that statistics would tell me meant I had well below a 50-50 chance of surviving. It was in this hotel room that I found myself on my knees, pounding my fists on the floor, crying out my boys' names, Taylor and Trey, and weeping uncontrollably because I feared I would not see them grow up. It was here that I truly felt all alone. My world was spinning out of control and I could do nothing to change it. After a while, my attention turned from my boys to God and I found myself begging him to let me live as my dad, my brother, my sister, and my wife stood helplessly by. I had lost control of my life and I had tried, and I had tried so desperately to control it from the time I was a young child playing the role of the hero in a chaotic, dysfunctional, alcoholic family. I finally couldn't try to fix a situation any longer, and I felt overwhelmed and alone. And so I gave up. It's hard to explain, but it was at this moment of crisis in my life when I knew Rick Schubach couldn't fix cancer, that I felt this incredible release of helplessness, of hopelessness and loneliness. In its place came a sense of peace and comfort I had never felt before. It was in that moment that I realized I had not given up, but I had surrendered to God, and he was there with me. I felt his tangible presence. I felt it in the form of the Holy Spirit. My mind immediately went to the, the poem Footprints, where the Lord replies, My precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your trials of the times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it's then that I carried you. I was not alone. He was there. Christ was there with me, and he was carrying me. I had no idea what his plan for my life would be, if I would live or if I would die, but I knew he was in control and I trusted in his plan. And it was at that moment that I gave my burden to Christ. I laid my health, I literally laid my life at the foot of the cross. And he would once again, just like during my troubled childhood, place people in my life to help me. I just had to look. It would be so obvious. The moment I was diagnosed with cancer, I had a sister in Christ with me, Nancy Schmadeke, the nurse at my doctor's office who took charge, held my hand, made phone calls. She and her husband took care of our boys while Lisa and I went to Marshalltown to get further tests. She made numerous phone calls to the Mayo Clinic and then on the next day on behalf of me. And when the Mayo Clinic returned a call that day and said they would take me as an extra, she said, Rick, get going. This doesn't just happen. The Mayo Clinic doesn't just take calls and take extras the same day. This is the work of an angel. She was right. She was my angel.
I remember back to the night I was diagnosed. I had a, a brother in Christ show up at my house, Bruce Gordon, one of my running partners, a strong person of faith. He was one of the individuals I was trained for the half marathon, the Drake half marathon with, and I was supposed to run that in two weeks. He said he felt he had to come but didn't know what to say. He didn't have to say anything. Later, while talking, he said he believed I was training for more than a half marathon, that I was training for my own marathon, that I was training for something much more important. How many times I clung to that belief. I was in the best shape of my life. And Bruce's words drove that point home to me. His words served as angels' wings, carrying me through the difficult times to follow. The next day, driving to Rochester, I had a brother in Christ with me, Sam Iverson, a dear friend and godfather to my son, Trey. During our drive, he directed me to Philippians 4, 6, 7, which has become my life verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That was it. That was the peace I felt. The peace I could not understand. God was protecting my mind, and the tumor was next to my heart. God was protecting my heart. Sam's prophetic direction to Scripture provided me great comfort. He was truly an angel God placed in my life at this critical time to affirm the peace I would feel a few days later in that hotel room. Sisters in Christ, through the weeks and months after my diagnosis, were the likes of Carol Iverson, Cindy Dirks, and Kathy Ross, strong ladies of faith who were my co-workers at the time. They took care of Taylor and Trey while Lisa was with me in Rochester for different key appointments. What a comfort to know that these young, uh, wonderful Christian ladies were caring for our children. They provided Taylor and Trey with a sense of security. And Lisa and I too. As we knew each night that our children were being put to bed with prayers and love. Who would be that unselfish and giving? Angels would. A brother in Christ who was always there for me was Hank Bergman, my next-door neighbor, 84 years young at the time. Hank frequently visited me, did my yard work, and prayed with me. He was a man of faith and was a life mentor to me. Hank died in the spring of 2009 at the age of 96. Upon Hank's death, his family asked me to deliver a eulogy at his funeral, and part of my message was a poem I wrote to Hank on his 90th birthday called The Man That Lives Next Door. Maybe a better title would have been The Angel That Lives Next Door. See, God used the relationships also that I had with my sons, Taylor and Trey, to inspire me. I so badly wanted to see them grow up. Trey, six years old at the time, even back then, he had this engaging, warm, loving personality. He was too young to fully grasp what was going on, so his smile, his happiness, his positive energy served as great motivation because I desired more of it to see more, to feel more, to simply hold him and to simply love him. To simply be in Trey's presence was such a blessing then and it's still today. I wanted more time with him. And Taylor, 10 at the time, but unbeknownst to him, provided me the most inspiration because of one incident that is forever seared into my memory. The first time I had 120-hour chemotherapy treatment, Lisa and the boys were getting ready to leave and Taylor hugged me and he would not let go. I can close my eyes today and still feel him desperately trying to hold on as his godfather, Kurt Olson, gently pulled him away. My 10-year-old son 
then stood in the middle of the hospital room with tears streaming down his face and cried so uncontrollably that he physically got sick. During my bout with cancer, that image of Taylor motivated me to fight. To fight? To live more than anything. Taylor and Trey, I love you, and no matter how old you are, you will always be my little angels. See, all these relationships impacted me and strengthened me. However, God placed the most significant person, no, the most significant angel in my life closest to me. My wife, Lisa, was such a source of strength during my battle with cancer. This woman was a pillar to lean on during this time as she cared for me without complaint, even when the burden was so great. She shone brightest of all as wife and mom during these turbulent times when others were out of sight. How she held it together during this ordeal, I do not know, but she did. She was and is an amazing woman. God placed her by my side to be my wife for better or for worse, and it was never as abundantly clear to me the type of woman I married than when I was at death's door. Today, I realize God gave me the gift of the perfect life partner for the past 29 years. I know what every husband or wife should know, that I am loved unconditionally with all my faults. Lisa, God knew I needed you in my life because he knew I needed a special angel. And you are that special angel. I see how God has taught me time and time again that relationships are what make life so glorious and beautiful. How relationships make life worth living. I think back to the warmth and the compassion given to my family and me when I was diagnosed with cancer, and I realized that these acts were important aspects in my recovery. Now when I go to church, I see people hurting or in need of prayer or grace or forgiveness. I see myself, one who has been humbled by the compassion of the brothers and sisters in Christ. I see each person at our church as my family, and family are people commonly that we commonly gather strength from. I say this because in Mark... Jesus talks about who his family is. In Mark 3, Then Jesus' mothers and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those in attendance, those seated at the circle around him. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Today I find such great strength in our Orchard Hill family, knowing I have so many brothers and sisters in Christ who care for me. Seeing these people allows me to reflect back on how I was surrounded from the beginning of my diagnosis with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I in turn have the opportunity to be salt and light for God, just as these individuals were for me. It is easy to see now how God placed so many encouraging people around me at my greatest time of need throughout my life. These people inspire me to do the same. How important are these relationships to me? Maybe the question should be, how important are they to God? Very important, as demonstrated with Jesus' own words in the writings of Matthew. Matthew 22 says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love your God with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in John 13, Jesus states, A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
Jesus emphasized the importance of relationships in his teaching. So what should the words of Jesus mean for us who have difficult relationships in our life? Growing up, my family relationships were filled with heartache and difficulty due to alcoholism. It could easily have meant fractured relationships with all my family members. But I believe relationships are what make life glorious and meaningful. And Jesus was clear how important relationships are in our life in his teaching. So any relationship, as difficult as it may be, is worth working on and never giving up on. God can mend relationships. God can restore relationships. So what about my family I grew up with? What about those relationships? My dad and I have always had a very special bond, even though he let me down time and time again when he would come to my games drunk, parent-teacher conferences drunk, my wedding drunk, or numerous other times when his drinking took precedence over me. I don't say this to enable my dad's drinking, but looking back, I realize my dad did the best that he could in very difficult circumstances. See, when my mom left unexpectedly, I did not just lose my mom. My dad also lost a wife he loved greatly. Here was a man that had an eighth grade education, who was an alcoholic, with a job that caused him to be gone for extended stretches of time, and he was left with three kids to raise. So he did the best that he could. And he taught me so much. He taught me a strong work ethic. My dad is 83 years old today and still works full time. You heard me right. 83 and works full time as a painting contractor. He taught me to tell my boys I love you each and every day because that's what he told me every day. And he taught me about forgiveness. See, in all my years growing up, my dad never said anything bad about my mom. He always told me, you need to love her. She is your mom, and she brought you into this world. And so I forgave her for leaving. And I also forgave him over and over for things that he did, because he had modeled forgiveness to me. When my dad was diagnosed with cancer two years ago, I took that chance to sit down and talk to him about Jesus. I found out that he was a believer, even though he did not attend church. I was able to have him repeat prayers proclaiming Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And in March of this year, for the first time in my life, other than going to a wedding or a funeral, I attended church with my dad. He came to Orchard Hill service in Grundy Theater and heard his grandson, Trey, lead worship. And he loved it. To say my sister, Joni, has had a tough life would be an understatement. I know my mom leaving her made led her to make many self-destructive decisions in her life. One of those was growing up too quickly in the dating world. When at 14, she began dating a 19-year-old that was incredibly abusive, both mentally and physically. I witnessed numerous violent physical abuse episodes, but as a 10-year-old, was too small and weak to stop it, though I tried. To be honest, I've locked many of those memories in my life away. Because they're so hurtful. My heart ached for my sister then and still does today. She ended up pregnant at 18 by this monster who she eventually married. 
He then moved them to the state of Washington, where my sister was isolated from us for 10 years and lived in fear on a daily basis. She finally fled for her life with her three children after a decade of abuse and came back to Mason City. She went on to raise three children on her own without any financial assistance from this man or the government. My sister and I always have had, my sister and I have always had a strong bond and we've always been able to talk freely about God. I am so proud of my sister. She is a survivor. My brother and I are total opposites. He's a Harley rider. He has long hair and a beard. Thinks he's E-top. He's covered in tattoos. He was a father out of wedlock at 17. He has been married and divorced multiple times. He never graduated high school. And he is an alcoholic. But my brother has been sober for 32 years, taking it one day at a time. He is a 36-year veteran of the railroad and today is a happy and content man. Despite the different roads we have traveled through life, we share a deep connection and respect for one another. And as our dad taught us, I love you is a part of our normal vocabulary with one another. I am so proud of my brother. He has persevered. My mom lives in Oklahoma today. To say we have been close all these years would be inaccurate. I love my mom, but I do not respect many of the decisions she has made. My mom's full name is Artis Olson, Schubach Schubach. She married my dad twice. Toddy Hunkford Pittman, with numerous, uh, numerous other live-in lovers along the way. She is 80 years old, lives by herself, despite now being blind. It would be easy to say she's de- she deserves what she's gotten, since she abandoned her children. That she should be isolated from us and in a cruel twist of fate, is unable to see us even when we now visit because of the loss of her eyesight. But is that how God would want us to feel? Would that be God's desire? Though I can say I have never been bitter toward my mother, I know I have always held her at arm's length, unable to feel a strong connection. However, it is my belief that every child deep down inside wants to have a positive relationship with their father and their mother. I am no different. And God's grace and mercy was the healing agent to improve our relationship. About five years ago, after a message at Orchard Hill Church on grace and forgiveness, I felt this tug on my heart to call my mom. I told her a little bit about church, and then I told her I had something important to say. I told her I did not need an explanation. I didn't want her to say a thing. I didn't need an explanation for why she left when I was eight. But it was important to me that she knew that I was okay. That I loved her. And I forgave her. I also told her I was sorry for hurting her all these years by keeping a distance between us and asking her for forgiveness. On the end of the phone, on the other end of the phone, all I heard was sobbing. After what seemed like the longest time, I heard two words. Thank you. At that moment, I realized my mom needed to hear those words more than I needed to say them. Her burden was lifted, a burden she carried for 38 years. God made that happen 
because I learned in 1997 in a hotel room in Rochester, Minnesota, that Rick Schubach couldn't fix anything, but God could. Romans 5.3 states, But we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that sufferings, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Hope. Hope for a lonely little boy growing up in an alcoholic home. Hope for a young father diagnosed with cancer. Hope for anyone to rise above any circumstance here on earth. Hope one day for all of us who believe to rise up to heaven to be with our eternal father. I have a good friend that once told me a message on Sunday should challenge us. I agree with him. So how can God challenge us through this message this morning? How about this? Relationships in Christ are a guarantee and a gift God has given us to receive if we're willing to accept it. If received, the question becomes, who are the angels God has placed in your life? And have you let them know it? If not, why not? And when will you? More importantly, who can and are we angels for? When we pursue Christ in a close, intimate relationship, and when we offer ourselves in Christ-like relationships to others we live with, we live as God would want us to. And when we live this way, it is God's promise we never must live alone. The challenge for all of us is to never again live alone. Two of the three stories that will be shared in this room over these three weeks are children of alcoholics. I've said for years, at Orchard, we have an alcoholism problem, and it's children of alcoholics. It's a generation removed. Our church body is filled with children of alcoholics. Look down your row. There's probably one sitting in your row right now. It's filled with it. I noticed one time, almost everyone who comes to my office for help is a child of an alcoholic. And so I really appreciate you standing here and talking about what's needed to break that chain, to get past that hurt. And uh, I'm going to pray for Rick, and I'm going to pray for anyone in the room who's touched by his story. First, I want to tell you about what's going to happen after this. Rick's son, Trey, is going to come and sing a song called, I Will Rise Up. I Will Rise Up. And Rick asked for it because it talks about being on our knees and surrendering, and in that surrendering, rising up. And so Rick's son, Trey, will come with our band. Rick's son, Trey, is also a worship leader at our theater. Talking about breaking a chain, starting at 8 or 11, and being alone in a home and putting yourself to sleep every night and building a family and building a life so that then your son is one of our worship leaders. What a great picture of new life.
the power of Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, uh, I thank you for Rick, for his courage, for his strength, for the number of times he's gone over this story to try to make it true, to try to make it heartfelt. I thank you for the family that he's built right there in Grundy Center. I thank you for the huge influence he has on the school there, on the PE program there, on his teams, who've won all kinds of accolades, but more important than any of the accolades, it's the kids on those teams whose life he touches. Father, I pray for people sitting in the seats here this morning who have heard something that has touched them deeply. I pray that maybe there's somebody in this room who needs to go and make a phone call today. Maybe somebody needs to uh, forgive somebody today. Maybe somebody needs to get on their knees and surrender today's challenge to you. I pray that it would be true. I pray that uh, people would rise up in Christ. Amen.